and welcome back to The Plays The Thing here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and I'm joined by Angelina Stanford and occasional contributor to this podcast, Andrew Kern. <laughs> welcome to the show to both of you. It is I, Andrew the Date. Wait, no. Hello. Thank you. Thank you. Excited to be here. Woohoo. Me too. We are here to discuss much to do about nothing. This being The Plays The Thing, we are... It's all Shakespeare all the time here in the place of thing. And this particular cycle, I don't know, five-week cycle, we are discussing the comedy Much Ado About Nothing. One of the probably, would you say, would you guys agree, most one of the most beloved Shakespeare plays most likely? Oh, I would, I would probably agree with that. I've been reading about how it was received at the time. So yeah, I'd say there's a good case to be made for that. Well, we're going to have to hear about that in a minute then. Would you agree with that? <laughs> Want to see how much we can destroy it? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we're going to be able to. Whatever we say against it, it'll dodge us. <laughs> but but I but I do think so. Yeah, I think it was always well received. And now you look at the movies that are. You look at the two movies. I'm sure these have come up, but the Branagh version and the Joss Whedon mm-hmm. version. They're so so different, mm-hmm. and yet both are so well received. So I think the story. Yeah, I think it carries well. It seems like a play that's kind of a uh, an actor's play. Is my, I mean, all of his plays are sort of actors' plays, but the way the lines are structured and things like that, they I think they lend themselves to being very fun. Oh, it definitely seems like it'd be fun to act in this, right? It's like, very playful. Like I don't think I'd be, I don't think it'd be fun to be in King Lear. <laughs> like make, <laughs> your, make yourself work up that kind of despair night after night. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna take a hard pass on that. But this seems like this would be. Yeah, you could do, fun. And you could probably your your performances could evolve, and each night you could change slightly and how you yeah, as, as you got a good chemistry between Beatrice and Benedict like oh I bet that would be a ton of fun oh yeah for sure yeah. okay well before we get into our conversation of act one of much you do about nothing I just want to say a quick word from our friends over at St. John's College if you love Shakespeare and presumably you either do or you want to love Shakespeare and that's why you're listening to this podcast then St. John's College is probably the perfect fit for you they are a leader in classical education founded in 1696 That's not me misreading that. That's an actual thing. They were founded in 1696 with campuses in Annapolis, Maryland, and Santa Fe, New Mexico. St. John's iconic great books program covers philosophy, science, math, music, Shakespeare, and more. Spend four years exploring three millennia of the greatest thinkers or do it in two at the Graduate Institute. With generous financial aid available, St. John's is among the most affordable colleges for true seekers. If you want to learn more about them, you can go to stjohns.edu. That is stjohns.edu. So thanks to our old friends at St. John's College. Yes, I got uh, to visit that campus uh, in May uh, when I was with the uh, CLT board meeting. We we, uh, had lunch at the president's house and then toured the campus. Absolutely breathtaking. Just breathtaking. I agree. It's beautiful. I didn't get to go to that beautiful campus. (laughs) And I do need to clarify something quickly. It's actually not stjohns.edu. It's SJC. Edu. St. John's.edu is the other one. It's St. John's University. <laughs> so it's sjc.edu is the site you'll want to go to to learn more about their, their programs. Oh, yeah. yes. Please clarify that. And they have a yearly, very famous croquet match against, is it Navy that's in Annapolis? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think it yeah, is. So Navy. they have a yearly croquet match, St. John's versus uh, Navy, and everyone comes out and dresses Gatsby style. And there's like a thousand people that come, and it's got a jazz band, and they sip champagne and play croquet against Navy. <laughs> that sounds like <laughs> like I would want to do that. It sounds awesome right. to me. Like that, that yeah. was the, I was like, can I enroll? Can I come back to school well, just if, for that? If you want to be able to go sit on a lawn and watch your child participate, or if you would like to participate in such a thing, then go to sjc.edu to learn more about it or join the Navy, I guess. Um, <laughs> yes, or, or join the Navy. <laughs> they're not a paid sponsor, David. You no, do not, not. get yeah, to say yeah, that. Take that back, David. Take That's that, true. Take so that I take back. it back. Don't join the Navy. Go to St. John's College. <laughs> Again, say sjc.edu. Or, or if the Navy career. contacts us and pr- wants to advertise, yes. then we can say that. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, speaking of navies, much to do about nothing. Oh, let me, let me, I was like, how is he going to do this? Speaking of men returning from war. Yeah, exactly. So, exactly. There you go. Hey, Angelina, when did you first read Much to Do About Nothing? I first read it in graduate school. So okay. as Andrew and I were joking the other day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that was, was joking. The, the other day. No, well, it was joking to David. We're just in the old people right. time warp where everything was the other day. 
So the other day when I was in graduate school, that was the last time I read this. First time I read this and last time I read this, I hadn't realized it had been so long. So last week I read it start to finish and just absolutely delighted in it. Mm. I mean, I've seen the movie a bunch of times, but I had not. So so uh, it feels like you've read it. Yes. Yeah. Which is, I guess, the beautiful thing about a Shakespeare, Shakespeare's, uh, Shakespeare on film is that much of the language, I mean, even if they cut certain lines out to, for the sake of time, much of the language tends to remain the same. So you're, you're, I mean, it's not the same as reading, certainly, but you're, you're getting in the partial experience. Dad, when did you first read Much Do About Nothing? Last week. <laughs> the other day. <laughs> Literally the other day. The other day, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think I, it was probably after the Branagh movie came out. Which was 93, I believe. I think so. Um, it was it was at Providence when you were a little one. What were you in second grade, first grade? And, uh, and I was I teaching was the high school, the, the middle, the, the sixth to ninth grade, I think, or ninth and tenth grade. I read it that year. I had already seen the movie, and then I read it then. Okay, so this is neither here nor there, but this, I'm thinking of this now that you're talking about the Branagh film in '93. I, if you guys, David, you won't recall because you were probably still you know, in your short pants, as they say. But uh, Andrew will remember the Tanya Harding, Nancy Kerrigan scandal back in the day, right? When oh, Nancy yes. Kerrigan hit, she hit Tanya uh, or whatever. Tanya, yeah, Harding. Tanya Harding, yeah. That yeah. was the she hired did, guy, yeah. That was about five years ago. She did not, she did or did not ask someone. It was a, it was a classic Henry II, someone should get rid of that bishop kind of situation. And <laughs> someone did, someone tried to get rid of that skater. Anyway, of course, it was a huge scandal and it overshadowed the Olympics that that year and tanya harding skated to the soundtrack from much ado about nothing no the Branagh. Really? yeah and all the commentators it was so awesome because in this skating performance all the commentators were breaking down the much ado about nothing motif of her olympic performance <laughs> and and the fact that you know first they were like is this is this a message saying the cascara with nancy kerrigan is much ado about nothing or is it that her skating is much ado about no- it was fantastic it was fantastic <laughs> no i don't remember that you're right <laughs> that's amazing i wonder if this is available on youtube i bet it is Tanya Harding skating in the 94 Olympics. Oh, how could it not be? 94, 94. The other commentators were like, no, no, she would have chosen this music years ago. Years she's been practicing this routine. But it was just talk about a cosmic irony, right? But maybe, but maybe for years she had been planning the planning it. The 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 way of winning the Olympics. (laughs) Maybe she was planning some uh, what is Don John mischief for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, maybe maybe it was making fair weather for herself, or or maybe um, though I cannot be said to be a flattering, honest man, I'm, it must not be denied that I'm a plain dealing villain. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, <sighs> I have so many notes here. Let's get going. Woo-hoo. All right, so so let's talk Act One a little bit, and um, should we should we talk about the 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 reception, the original reception first? Where would where would you all like to start? I'm more interested in the play. Let's dive. Let's um, let's dive into. Hmm. <laughs> let's dip our toe in the shallow end. I, w- I would just like to point out that in the Olympics, a victory is twice itself when the achiever brings home full numbers, <laughs> which in that case did not happen. Andrew, Dude, it was eat, not much. I Andrew, I will eat all of the gold medals you bring back. <laughs> From the Olympics. Well, they would be much deserved on my part and equally remembered. <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to sit here. I'll let you riff for a while. <laughs> Can we have a little beach, a little B&B banter over here? Why not? You've been doing in the figure of a lion the feats of a lamb. So on we go. So last one is made up of the one lengthy scene followed by two short ones. And I was curious, do you know if that's a common Shakespeare approach? That where the first scene is long, followed by shorter ones. Lear's like that. We just read Lear with Tim and and Matt. Do you do you, off the top of your head? Do either of you know? Off the top of my head, I don't know a definitive answer, but it doesn't seem off to me. It's not. Be- no, it's not off. Uh, because uh, so you have that opening scene of you know the expository scene, basically, right? And then the second scene sets up uh, what is potentially the conflict. Mm-hmm. And so that that it's usually just a tease, a hint of it, right? Yeah, I would say that every every single theme, especially the main one or two, is detailed, laid out in detail in scene one. 
Oh, absolutely. And then two and two and three, it's like a sonata where you have a kind of an overture and then, and then you go to Leonardo and Antonio and scene two, the positive side, and then you go dark and scene three, but that's the tension. There you go on. We're underway now. And, and what the reason I read that, that line of victory is twice itself is because that's such an important context throughout this play. There's a subtext of con of contest. 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 Yeah. A context of contest. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes, absolutely. Beginning with the fact that they're coming back from a war. That from a war. Won, mm -hmm. And that they have been... Um, rel that at least as far as the noblemen is con are concerned, not many of them were lost. That few right, of any sort. Right. And that's, right. and this is of course, very typical of a comedy. We're going to keep things light. And so even discussions of wars and soldiers is going to be light. So they, they, it's almost as if, well, there's a very much a, a strong fairy tale element in all of the comedies very intentionally. And so even the war is, is fairy tale-ish. This is not going to be dark and heavy. Uh, right. No one was lost They're They're coming back in victory and looking to have some fun. Huh. In fact, how interesting. The darkest part of the play is not them at war, but them in love. Exactly. That's exactly so. That's exactly so. That's kind of cool. That's so Shakespearean. And, and he, he plays with that. I, I reversed that doing in the figure of a lamb, the feats of a lion thing, but he's playing with that throughout that first scene where, well, at least a couple times where he reverses expectations. Um, I had rather hear my dog bark at a crow than a man swear he loves me. Um, the stuffed man, then Don John, I am not of many words, but I thank you that that opposition to his reality. Um, throughout the first scene and I'm, they're not coming to me like I hope they would right now, but there's all these reversals of, of expectation. So war and love don't play like you expect them to. But what's interesting is that both in love and war, your goal is to win. And in war and, and in both cases, I would argue your goal is to win the other side to your side and ideally to win their hearts to your side. So, you know, if you can win a war and then, and then, you're using violence to get them to submit, but you hope that at some point they're going to see the, the benefit of it. Right. And in love, you're also trying to win their heart. And that's what he's playing with through oh, yeah. this whole play. Is and, that, and the idea you, that to, to, to win in love is to be slain yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Which is set up in Benedict's perspective. Exactly. So you have the, these guys coming back victorious from war. This is like the height of manliness, right? And they know who they are on the battlefield and they have proven themselves. And then they walk right into the situation in which they don't really know who they are. They cannot prove themselves. They're all at sixes and sevens, as they say. And uh, why am I suddenly just spouting all of these Britishisms? What have I been reading lately? But there you go. <laughs> Something by Shakespeare. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And so, so one of the funny things in that line is, for example, line 174 in my book, um, when Claudio says that he's in love with, with Hero, or can the world buy such a jewel? And Benedict, yay, and a case to put it into, to play a little Brano. But speak you this with a sad brow, right? Uh, I love the idea that to be in love is to be sad. Now, I understand that sad implies seriousness, but the word's not there by accident. Speak you this with a sad brow. And then when you go to uh, 297, Claudio says to Pedro, how sweetly you do minister to love that no loves grief by his complexion, right? And this whole notion that love is this great sadness and in war, you're almost having a joyful time. It's so fun. And Benedict and, and is, go ahead. I was gonna say, so that's a Renaissance idea, that melancholy of love and that you want to retreat and reflect on the sweet melancholy of being in love. Mm -hmm. And write a sonnet. And it make a poet out of you, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. And so I was I'm actually reading right now um, Ovid's, I don't know how to actually say this, Heroides, the, the letters of heroines that Ovid wrote. Um, and it's really quite fascinating and, and reading the love letters between Helen and Paris is, is really something. But, mm. uh, but one of the themes that emerges is the love and war theme and love and, and Cupid's arrow uh, being struck with Cupid's arrow, that, that being a violent and 
almost self-destructive act and how easy love can become an act of destruction. And, and through these letters, Ovid explores, you know, what's what, the good version of that is Penelope and Ulysses. The bad version of that is Helen and Paris. And he's, well, he's exploring a lot of the same ideas in this play, the love and war and, and, when is being struck by Cupid's arrow a horrible destructive act and and when is it good? Well, for Benedict, he's referring to he's referring to Cupid as the hunter, right? And he's talking mm-hmm. about he's the object being the hare that you're trying to kill, you're trying to capture. Um and then Vulcan being the the um the blacksmith is an interesting bit to that that maybe we can talk about. Um but there is Well Hephaestus is Aphrodite's husband. Good point. He's the blacksmith, right? That's where I was going with that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you're reading Ovid because because you can't read Ovid without it informing your Shakespeare readings. He, oh, absolutely. He, he floats in Ovid. There were a lot less books for him to read back then, so I had to read a lot of Ovid. <laughs> Actually, I'm glad I'm glad that came up. He didn't up. have Shakespeare to read. That was one of the things that I wanted to 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 bring up is that we we um I always like to keep in the front of my mind the fact that English literature comes from the Romans and there's a, a very direct and deliberate line of influence uh, all the way through the Renaissance well and beyond but after the Renaissance of course you have more Greek texts but before this it would have been Virgil and Ovid Dante and then Ariosto and Boccaccio. Uh, and all of those are hugely influential in understanding any English literature, medieval work, but especially Shakespeare as well. So he's, um, Shakespeare is working within some, of course, every, I assume everybody knows Shakespeare only wrote one quote unquote original um, plot. That was The Tempest. Everything else he's working with well-established characters and plot lines and stories. And the interesting thing is his innovation. Uh, and so he's doing that here. So you've got two two main plot lines, the, the lady falsely accused plot line and then the tricking the couple to fall in love plot line, both of which were very common. And the lady falsely accused plot line comes from uh, Ariosto's Orlando Furioso, which was extremely influential. Spencer borrows very heavily from that. Um, and uh, the lady falsely accused also goes in Spencer's book two. So that's the, uh, one of the side plots. Uh, and Shakespeare very, very deliberately working in the Spencer's tr- tradition. Of course, he Shakespeare used the Spencerian sonnet um, form instead of the Petrarchan sonnet form. So he's very deliberately dealing with Spencer. But the interesting thing about the Spencer version is in the lady falsely accused plot line, she actually physically dies and it's a tragedy. Hmm. So we we look for the ways in which Shakespeare's playing with well-established stories. And so it's another, like Andrew talked about reversing expectations. You know, the audience is going to recognize this story just like we would recognize, you know, a little Red Riding Hood motif in a movie. And if we were watching a movie and all of a sudden, you know, Red Riding Hood eats the wolf, we would know that's a twist. That's an innovation, right? But we, we miss those moments that would be obvious to the Renaissance audience because we're so far removed from it. So just wanted to mention that. It's interesting... It's interesting that you mentioned you said you mentioned Boccaccio, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, Boccaccio, I, I was I was actually I just read um, "Sailing to Byzantium" on the Daily Poem podcast, and um, he uses "Ottava Rima" in that poem, which was commonly used for heroic verse. And that "Ottava Rima" is that eight beat rhyme? Yeah, and it was so it was commonly used for heroic heroic verse and then ultimately became used by, by mock epics and it was invented or popularized at least in Italian by Boccaccio. So it's interesting mm-hmm. that you mentioned that, that that line from Boccaccio up through Shakespeare and especially given that we have a character here who's named hero and I'm just throwing that out there. I don't know. I haven't thought about it beyond what you're, you know, beyond what your the echo that your comments just called to mind, but those kind of reversals and those kind of echoes are, um, mm-hmm. Going back to the, to Roman literature are really interesting. I've not, I don't know that I've. So, speaking of of, so I read a bunch of Shakespeare essays last week. I happily fell down the rabbit hole of Shakespeare essays and re- read across this, which I thought was super fascinating. So, blank verse was invented during the Renaissance by Christopher Marlowe to mimic Seneca's uh, poetry meter. Hmm. So it was an attempt to make it feel like Roman poetry. That's fascinating. 
I thought it was, I was totally geeked out about it. Our listeners are probably like yawn, but I, I thought that was super cool. <laughs> no, I bet a lot of them like that fact. <laughs> That's worth a, a, a search. One thing to go back a little bit, what we were talking about, um, the, the idea of melancholy, um, and love and melancholy and the way he, in the first act contrasts Benedict Benedict's perspective on it with Claudio's perspective on it is interesting because Claudio is, he's diving into the melancholy, right? He's sort of, he's like in a, love. Yeah, like a teenager. <laughs> he's sort of uh, diving into it. And Benedict is avoiding it at all costs. Um, so so there's, there's kind of one of the things, you go back to that idea of contest. It's like a contest of will against the sort of transforming or, um, um, well, transforming power of love. So Claudio is giving into that and Benedict is raging against it. He's, he's in a contest with love itself, it seems. So that is a very, very common Shakespeare trope. Uh, you see it in a ton of plays, both the tragic, well, one of the tragedies, Romeo and Juliet, and a lot of the comedies. What he likes to do is set up pairs of couples, not all of them, not all of them are necessarily romantic, just it'll always be a, a man and a woman. Um, Cause sometimes it could just be a friend making comments, but in this case, it's two, you know, couple couples and one will be set up as the ultra romantic couple and the other as the anti-romantic couple. And he'll contrast those through the entire play. So in, in Romeo and Juliet, for example, you have Romeo and Juliet as the, we fell in love instantly and they're the ultra romantic and they're talking in very platonic spiritual terms. Uh, and and then Mercutio and the nurse are the anti-romantic characters who are constantly making the very body physical jokes about Romeo and Juliet's spiritual love. And, and so one's ultra-romantic, one's anti-romantic. Um, and the same thing is happening here. And what Shakespeare likes to do, though, <laughs> I, won't, I won't spoil what he'll do, but what he likes to do is to raise very serious questions about what actually is the nature of love and where does it exist between the two poles of the I fell in love in first sight and the not me, boy. I'm not falling for this. Love is nothing but misery. And, and, and so there, where's the real thing? And there's a very important part in that really funny exchange between Benedict and Beatrice where that comes up, where um, the big issue with Benedict is he's, uh, he's unstable. He's, he's unreliable. And, and when they're going back and forth, Benedict, um, you know what I'm talking about, where, where um, courtesy is a turncoat and all that? Um, when yes. they meet, my dear lady, just, you want to read that back and forth and then I'll tell you when we get to the point. Yeah, where was the line? 107, let's, well, let's say okay. 110. One scene one. Yeah. Oh, oh, you, oh you, you mean where I marked in the margin, ha, exclamation point? Okay, yeah. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> let's go there. Well, okay, you can start it. I wonder that you will still be talking. Okay, and before I read that, I just wanted to point this out. I marked every time Beatrice starts talking to Benedict for no good reason. Like she hates him so much, but she cannot stop initiating a conversation. And this is one, right? She starts talking to talk about how he's not talking, right? And nobody oh, no, notices. No, about how no he notices. Oh, Benedict, yeah. are you talking? No one's listening. So she, she talks to him to tell him no one's listening. And over and over, the two of them, if, if you track it as you're reading, they always bring the other up in conversation with no context. Uh -huh. just, just, well, I wonder what Beatrice would think about that. Like, they're so obviously obsessed with each other. Junior and, high kids? Yes, yes. So I, I just, I, I really entertain myself marking all the places that they find an excuse to talk to one another or about the other. Just fascinating. Awesome. That's good. Okay, all so right. line 110, act one, scene one, starting with where Beatrice is speaking. I wonder that you will still be talking, Senor Benedict. Nobody marks you. What? My dear lady disdain? <laughs> Are you yet living? Is it possible disdain should die while she has such meat food to feed it as Senor Benedict? Courtesy itself must convert to disdain if you come in her presence. Then is courtesy a turncoat? But it is certain I am loved of all ladies, only you excepted. And I would I could find in my heart that I had not a hard heart, for truly I love none. A dear happiness to women. They would else have been troubled with a pernicious suitor. I thank God and my cold blood. I am of your humor for that. I had rather hear my dog bark at a crow than a man swear he loves me. 
God keep your ladyship still in that mind. <laughs> so some gentleman or other shall scape a predestinate scratched face. Scratching could not make it worse. And twere such a face as yours were. Well, you are a rare parrot teacher. <laughs> a bird of my tongue is better than a beast of yours. I would my horse had the speed of your tongue. And so good a continuer. But keep your way at God's name. I have done. You always end with a jage trick. I know you of old. Okay, now that's what I wanted to really get to is the, the last thing Benedict says and what Beatrice responds to. I would my horse said the speed of your tongue is just a good line. And so good a continuer is the ignored one. And then Beatrice says you always end with a jade's trick. And the idea there is that a jade is a horse that just stops. Mm -hmm. so, so you're running a race. You can't finish the race. Can't finish it. Can't win. Ladies, do we know? Ladies, have we met Benedict? <laughs> Sigh no more, ladies. Sigh no more. Men were deceivers ever. But notice what she says. I know you of old. Okay. The, and the implication is they had some kind of relationship before the play. But, but Benedict is saying, I would my horse had so good a continuer. Right. I wish I wish I had something that could complete this race. And Beatrice says, well, this is you. This is how you are. You're always ending things. You're not reliable. And so in this in this really funny exchange, they're going after each other. There's something behind all this that they're 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 like you said, they're fascinated with each other. They're attracted to each other, but they're attracted to each other with a. You're not sure if they're going to destroy each other or fall in love with each other. They're, both are very possible at this point. Beatrice really would like to scratch his face is what I think. <laughs> and, and I love that line. You are a rare parrot teacher because I think what he's saying is, oh, good one. You couldn't make up a joke of your own. All you can do is repeat. And then, and then she talks about how he can't even speak. He's just a beast with, you know, a dumb beast. So, but you see what I'm getting at. Benedict, Benedict is talking about, about how he wishes that his horse could finish the race. And it's almost like there's a confession going on there, uh, an ironic one. And Beatrice then accuses him. And and he's not a faithful man. He's not steadfast. Oh, that's, absolutely. That's the idea. And, and I, think, I think that you see that in her reply of, I know you have all that that's, that's a little bit stung. She's stung by him. She yeah. has been stung by him. And so that those those things, those things come out definitely. And I like that you said you don't know if this love will if they will give into this love or if it will destroy them. Um, a Shakespeare comedy always opens with a threat. Um, it's a comic threat, of course, but, but there's always a threat. Uh, typically, and it's and it's a threat that is not given an explanation. So for example, in the tragedies, uh, Shakespeare is going to go all over the place to explore the nature of evil and what causes a man to go wrong and what could have, what could have happened differently. And he's, he's all exploring that. And in a comedy, he does not explore the nature of evil. The, the evil threat is just a given. So very typically uh, it's um, a ridiculous law, right? Like twins are illegal in this country or wait, you're from Tennessee. Tennessee people are to be executed. I mean, it's just, it's some ridiculous law that everyone treats as a matter of fact, and it and, and it results in a death penalty or an exile, which is a metaphorical death penalty, uh, and then that causes the couple to be separated, and then the obstacle has to be overcome at some point dur during the play. In Much Ado, though, he he's got a twist on that, where the the threat uh, is not a, a weird law, but it's in the character of Don John, and um, I know that sometimes people can be frustrated or, or confused about this character, that he, he seems to have no real motivation for his evil. And that is because he's supposed to be comic and stock. He's a stock character. Um, and he he's essentially the accepted threat of death, just like a weird law would be. And so he's, um, uh, in, in some sense, he's almost like um, the, uh, the, 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 the foil to the happy ending. Like there has to be a foil. So, so that's what he is. And the only explanation Shakespeare gives, well, I mean, there's a little bit of a hint that he might have some jealousy because these guys did well in the war. But the, the only real explanation he gives is that Don John is a bastard. And so that would mean that he was unnatural and he's disordered in some way. And so, like of course, then he's going to be, yes, yeah, like he'll be the representation. He'll be the representation of disorder. So that's because he's disordered. He's going to go create disorder everywhere that he is. And it's right. not going to be 
developed. And in that sense, he reminds me a lot, even though this character comes a little later, he reminds me a lot of Milton Satan, that just, I'm, I'm just going to go cause trouble for the sake of causing trouble because I'm unhappy. And then, and then you pointed out he's a stock character and Shakespeare's genius. You've talked a lot about sort of the surrounding sources and whatever that Shakespeare has brought together in the play. And, and we could add Pythagoras and add a lot of others. Um, but what I love about the way he does it, he'll take a character like Don John who doesn't have a fully developed, well, who's a stock character. And yet in the few lines that he has, there really is a lot revealed about him and the plot itself does depend on him. And oh, I, yeah. would I would argue that one of the most important two lines in the whole play explaining it are when Conrad is talking to him in, in one three and Conrad. So mm -hmm. Conrad comes in and says, why are you so out of so sad? Right? There's that issue of sadness. again. He's not in love, but he's sad. And he says, there's, there is no measure in the occasion that breeds. So he's being Pythagorean here, you know, it's, it's impossible to measure it. So there's no limit to my sadness. And Conrad says, you should hear reason. And the thing about that is that we don't think about reason like they did. You've talked about Renaissance thought. When mm -hmm. they talked about reason, they were much more musical. They, they were much more, I mean, think of the art of harmonia, right? They were much more um, in, the, in the context of the, the universe makes sense from the stars in the sky to the, we're microcosm, that's macrocosm. And when he says you should hear reason, basically what he's saying is you should align your behavior with the cosmos. Exactly. You, you should be in tune, right? right? And John says, and when I have heard it, what blessing brims, brings it? And that's amazing because the whole play, as I said before, in my view, the, the whole play is about winning. But it's about winning in battle, but it's also about winning. Mostly the play itself is about winning someone's heart. And right here, Conrad, in effect, is trying to win Don John's heart. And he does it with a direct appeal. You should hear reason. This is what you should do. And John says, what blessing is it going to persuade me? Persuade me that I should hear reason. And the best thing Conrad can come up with is either remedy. If it can't solve the problem, it can at least help you endure it. And then, you know, John runs off with that and says, I cannot hide what I am, which is a really fascinating point in a play that's all about wearing disguises. Mm -hmm. But when I have heard it, what blessing brings it? So when, when we're looking at all these people trying to persuade each other, what Shakespeare does is he gives us these incredibly fully orbed characters who have, who have many different modes of persuasion, many different modes of being persuaded, many different voices, many different ears. And we're watching as everybody is trying in some way or another to win everybody else's mind and, and usually even heart. And it's fascinating to watch. And, and the, the complexity of reason is what, what we're going to get hints of throughout. Oh, I love that. I have so many things to say in response. So I'm just going to rapid fire all of them if I can. <laughs> but, uh, oh, you okay. have almost enough matter in you for such an <laughs> embassage. Ah. <laughs> uh, Comedies always revolve around the question of self-knowledge. Always the, the comic characters are moving from not knowing who they are to finally at the end knowing who they are. So in this case, it's that they don't know their own hearts, right? But what's interesting is that the villain is the only person who knows who he is. I'm a plain de villain, dealing villain. He knows exactly who he is, right? Uh, so that is a very interesting twist on it. The bad guy knows exactly who he is. It's the good people who don't have any idea what's going on. They're all deceived. And of course, the two main plot lines are about deception. Uh, one, the deception to bring about the ruin of Harrow and Claudio. And the other is the, the playful deception to, to, to gull Benedict and Beatrice into falling in love with one another. Uh, but there's, there's lots of plays on that. Um, and, and, and going back to the idea of reason, so again, Don John is a disordered character by virtue of being born a bastard. And so to, to tell him, listen to reason is really to say, be in harmony, stop being disordered. So for the Renaissance person, and Andrew's absolutely right, I mean, the whole universe is very stringently ordered and um, all in terms of little triads of hierarchies, which are all parallel to each other. So inside a man, reason was supposed to be at the top, then the will, then passions. And so by virtue of your reason, then your will would control your passions. And if anything was out of order, so Shakespeare does this all the time, the, the villains are flipped upside down. They're being run by their passions. 
Um, and that's, and so this is what Don John is doing as well. Like I feel out of sorts. And so I'm going to make everybody be out of sorts. And can I challenge you on that? Yeah, sure. Because what, what's fascinating, you may be right, but, but I want to challenge you just because I want to think about it. <laughs> what fascinates me about his character Don is John's. Don John's character is that he's not emotional. He, he's not really passionate. He's, he's sad. He's melancholy. He's trying to get revenge, but which is why, why Brenna had Keanu Reeves play it in the way that he did, which gets mocked, but also I believe had great purpose. I think there was a reason why he casted him for that role. Huh? Huh? He's That's kind of a stock actor, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sort of. <laughs> but I love, what? Go, go ahead. Well, I don't know that. I mean, passions in the sense that he has to be emotional. Okay. It, it, it's just passions in the sense of, um, the th he's not driven by the highest being he's driven by the lowest yes so yeah there's that renaissance idea that we're either moving in a direction toward being an angel or we're moving in the direction toward being a beast i'm going to jump on that part there that's really good because because in line nine don john is responding to conrad telling him what reason can do and he says to him i wonder that thou john talking to conrad being as thou sayest thou art born under Saturn. And that's so interesting that he says to him, being as thou sayest thou art. And, you know, it, it's almost implied, I don't trust you, even though you're my comrade, Conrad. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. See what I did there? I wonder that thou <laughs> goest about to apply a moral medicine to a mortifying mischief. Right? So, so I have a mischief in me. And does he mean to say that it's killing himself or that he's going to use it to kill? But, but he's trying to apply a moral medicine to a mortifying mischief. And then he says, I cannot hide what I am. I must be sad when I have cause and smile at no man's jests. So he's saying, There's, you're, you're trying to offer me a cure that won't cure the malady that I have. It's, it's an inappropriate cure for the particular disease that I'm suffering. Exactly. And, and so and the I, next line, I have to eat when I have stomach. That's exactly. that kind of bestial passion that I'm talking about. So he's Which just- Which goes back to, that goes back to Benedict and Beatrice's debate. But notice what this is implying about reason. The implication is, okay, let me finish that. Eat when I have mm -hmm. stomach and wait for no man's leisure or leisure. Sleep when I am drowsy and tend on no man's business. Laugh when I am merry and claw no man in his humor. In other words, I'm who I am and I'm not going to adapt and adjust to the people around me. When I'm hungry, I'm going to eat. When I'm tired, I'm going to sleep. When I, when I feel like laughing, I'm going to laugh. But notice what reason would do, according to him. Mm -hmm. Reason would hide what he is, right? Reason would make him something other than what I think a modern person, I, I think a lot of moderns would read lines 12 through 16 and say, yeah, he's an authentic man. He's being real. The Renaissance would say, no, he's not being real. He's being driven by the lowest level of his reality. He mm -hmm. can't, if reason's involved, there are times when you do hide what you are, or rather you don't think to yourself, the only thing I am is my epithumos, my lowest, you know, my, when Paul speaks of my God, their God is their belly. That's what he's talking about. The, the guts and the viscera and the loins. And what John's saying is that's who I am, a beast. Mm -hmm. And what reason does is it hides the beast and, and, and reason raises us up to being something higher. So I think you've talked me into it. I think you've persuaded me. You've won me. All right. Good, good. And I, I'm totally tracking with everything you're saying here that, it reminds me, it's the kind of thing you can, conversation you can have with like a mopey teenager, right? And well, I have to feel what I, what I feel. And, and they're upset with you that you want them to be phony. Um, but there's right. a third option, right? Which is maybe, maybe you can authentically feel good. Maybe <laughs> there's more to you. That. Maybe there's more to you than you're acknowledging, right? Maybe there's something higher to you than just your appetites than just your bestial appetites. I think, I think that's the one thing we don't teach people in our culture is that, you know, in, in the whole sexual revolution, that's the loins. What we don't teach people is that there's something higher to them, something noble, something that's going to demand a lot of them. Yes. But, but it's not going to make them fake. It's going to make them higher. I think that that's being, that's being laid out for us in that first act.
throughout the first act, there are constant references to to beasts, um, right? To human, and even saying, you know, mm-hmm. you are like a beast, or I am like a, you know, you get the Beatrice and the Benedict stuff. You got the stuff, parrot and the horse, parrot, the horse, the hare, the yeah. ox, the ox with the bulls. Benedict talking about the ox with the horns on his head. Um, it's it's the uh, and this also plays out with the ultra romantic eating, eating the killing motif because. The ultra romantic would say that love is the thing that elevates you to the higher spiritual realm, right? Right. And then the anti-romantic says, no, what you're feeling is really just bestial passion. And they try to make it be the, the lower realm. And so Shakespeare's dealing with the same exact ideas in the question of what actually is love. Is this love is something so that good. elevates you or is it something that brings you down to your basest desires? Now, I have to confess, I've been reading a lot about, about Pythagoras recently because of the quadrivium. But one of the things that's, that's absolutely crucial in, in all Pythagorean theory, which and he was the dominant Plato, Aristotle, and Pythagoras are what they read in the Renaissance above all, well, they read about Pythagoras. But one of the things Pythagoras is always talking about is contraries that cannot be met, right? You have, you have for example, the four elements. You have uh, fire, earth, and those are extremes. Fire and earth can't meet each other. But in between them are water and air. And so in order to mediate between fire and earth, you have to intervene with the means of water and air. Okay. Now, that's, don't worry about the technicalities of that. But the point is to say that what we're, what we're looking at here is within ourselves, every one of us has these extremes. And when we give in to either extreme, we break ourselves down. The role yes. of reason then is not to squelch the, the, the animal part of us, if you want to call it that, or, or even just the, the loins and the belly. It's the, the role of reason is not to destroy it, to, make a, to, to uh, beat it down into abject slavery. It's to put it in order, right? To, yes. to, to, bring it yes. to, a right, to bring it to its right place. So that, as Benedict learns, the world must be peopled. Right. <laughs> but it, but it should be people guided by reason, not guided by the loins. But even that line, that line right there brilliantly shows exactly the contrast that Shakespeare is setting up, because some people do look at love just in terms of, well, you know, we've got to keep the population going. That would be a that would be an animal way to approach it. Right. Mm-hmm. Got to keep the species going. Um but he's but the irony is that he's saying that when he's being the height of actually being in love, he's just playing with himself. He's being deceived because he doesn't want to admit it. But it's always fun to look. So Shakespeare loves to set up. Well, he's being deceived poles. in the truth, though. <laughs> he 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 loves to set up these stark poles and then play within them to raise right. the questions of where is the harmony. Uh, the medieval person would say, where's the proportion? If anything's right. out of proportion, then you're going to fall apart. The kingdom will fall apart. The marriage will fall apart. The person will fall apart. Everything do you know what the Latin word is for proportion? I mean, the I Greek word. Latin is proportion is Latin. The Greek word for proportion. This, I got to, forgive me. This is fun. <laughs> the, the Greek word for ratio, ratio, is logos. The Greek word for proportion is analogos. The Greek word for harmony is homologes. So every one of them revolves on its relationship to the logos. And ratio, mm-hmm. proportion, and harmony, those are the things that, that reason in the Renaissance sense, in the Shakespearean sense, maybe even in the Christian sense, is trying to achieve. And because, like I said before, there's you have the four elements with the two mediators, I would bet you that we could go through this play and find the fire, the the earth, the air, and the water. Oh, I bet. And the four humors being out of order. Exactly. Exactly. And but what I'm responding specifically is something you said a moment ago where Shakespeare likes to to put these extremes out there and then kind of play around with them. Right. What enables him to play around with them is the is that, that there's at least two means and those those are dynamic between the extremes. And so mm-hmm. there's this very, very formal art that Shakespeare's playing with here. And it looks effortless. It looks from the surface like Shakespeare's a Don John, you know, just chaos. But but there's something very formal going on. Mm-hmm. Characters playing off each other. It's quite extraordinary. Angelina mentioned the two couples. Who does? Um, Angelina mentioned the two couples. But then you also have Beatrix. Ah. Beatrix. Beatrix. You have Benedict. Wow. You have Benedict. The two friendships. Yes, you, yes. Well you, well, you have the two friendships, but then you also have the triumvirate of like Claudio, Pedro, Benedict in contrast in act one, f- finishing up act, that, act, the scene one conversation. 
And then in Act Three, you've got Don John and his three, his two henchmen. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the diff, there's a you know they're after different things, of course, but they're mm-hmm. mirrored even in some of the same ways that that's a very short conversation with Don John and um, Baraccio and um, uh, Conrad. But I think there are some similarities in oh. where that contrast <clears throat> is happening with the conversation between Benedict Claudius and uh, Don Pedro, even where Claudius, you know, Benedict is telling, Benedict is telling um, Don Pedro, Claudio's in love, right? Mm-hmm. And Claudio starts talking about his own passions. Mm-hmm. He talks about passion. He's, but in a way, he's sort of like, he's passionless, sort of, in a way that Don Pedro is, or Don John is similarly passionless. It's all like he just expresses, he says that he's in love, but it doesn't, come out, it doesn't uh, come out. No, the same that is Benedict. very true. That's Benedict very... is truly passionate, right? And everything. No, that's totally true. And you can't miss the fact that uh, Claudio realizes it's love at first sight after he asks what kind of dowry she has. Right. right. So maybe <laughs> oh, Claudio is she your is... only heir? Oh, I love at first sight. <laughs> maybe Claudio is earth and Benedict is fire. I got to jump well, on something that you... Well, but he's going to raise that question again about, you know, is Claudio really the ultra romantic or is he playing the part of the ultra romantic, but really he's being the anti-romantic? Yeah, yeah. Shakespeare plays with all of this. I got to jump on this formal point here because because um, I when when David was talking about the triangles, the threes, and we've already talked about fours, the tetrad, and the and the and the triangle, and and all this stuff. I I am this is all musical stuff, and I would bet that if you did a musical analysis of Much Ado About Nothing, you would find all kinds of Renaissance music theory floating through it. And here's here's why that got me excited just a moment ago. The name of the play. The name of the play has at least four meanings, much mm-hmm. to do about nothing. It could be nothing, right? It could be like they're making a big deal out of nothing. A second is much to do about, it was pronounced at that time more like noting. Mm-hmm. And so a second thing it could mean is overhearing people talking. And act one, scene two, which doesn't even get put in most movies, is a crucial scene because it shows that the discussion between... Um, Don Pedro and Claudio is overheard. Yep. Right. And that's what drives the plot is something being overheard. But the third thing is much about noting. That's a word for music. Right. So it's much ado about music. And there's all in scene three. There's there's that at the end of the scene as in musical notes. Uh, as in music, the whole thing. Yeah, however you want to take it. And, but what I'm getting at is is at the end of scene three, he mentions to those guys, or a start of it, they're talking about, who, or two, scene two rather, they're talking about who's playing the music, who's providing it, okay? And it's just thrown in there. But what really is striking me now is that formally this play is much ado about music because I'm sure, I, I, I can't, you know, I, I'm just taking this on faith right now, but I'm sure that Shakespeare is playing off these Pythagorean music theories, these Renaissance music theories, and he's putting them in the characters. And, and if and if that's not the case, I will be very, very surprised. As okay, well, him, all about you. astronomy. This is all about harmonia. I will support you by saying that um, the most common motif in medieval literature is the idea of harmony, and the symbol that they used to portray that was the harp. Um, and so things uh, are always yes. being out of tune and then retuned at the end, and the, the king will play the harp, and that brings it all together. And to support you further, none other than Boethius himself wrote a commentary on the myth of Orpheus in which he argued the whole thing could only under, be understood in the musical mathematics of it. Mm. Is it not strange that sheep's guts should hail exactly. souls out of bodies. Exactly. It just and is it bring, so is the music bringing your soul into harmony? That's a very Renaissance right. and Shakespearean idea. And I want to make sure too that, because as moderns, I think we, we put at odds reason and the passions. Right. Right. Uh, that is not the way the Renaissance man would look at that at all. Not at all. Reason is going to be on top of the passions, but not opposed to it, but keeping it in proper order. Ordering in order to fulfill. Yes, being in harmony within yourself. And so Shakespeare, the, the theme of harmony and order and disorder and order and chaos. And so if you if you track his plays, they always start in order, move to chaos and go back to order. If it's a comedy, flip that around if it's a tragedy, but he's obsessed with order. So we cannot forget the reason for the war that happened off stage is that Don John rebelled against his brother, Don Pedro. It was a civil war, which is that is the metaphor for the ultimate disorder in Shakespeare's mm-hmm. universe. And so they have... They have 
stopped the rebellion. They have restored, the army has restored order by knocking down the rebel Don John. And then Don John now is going to try to now find a new way to create disorder and chaos within the families. And the army is the chest. One of the things that I'm, I've been thinking about as, as you both were talking about this idea of harmony and then the shapes, the musical notes, the shapes, all that stuff. Anytime someone's listening, one shape turns into a different shape. So if you have two people talking and then the third person is listening, it becomes a triangle. If you've got mm. three people talking and then, and then the fourth person is listening off behind and the other people don't know, it becomes a, tr- a square, right? So in a sense, that, that new person that's listening can either be bringing a new harmony or ah. ruining the harmony of the current shape. And that that's the two different uses of eavesdropping in the two plot lines, because exactly. in, the, in, the, exactly. in, the, in the Benedict and Beatrice plot line, the eavesdropping is all used to bring the couple to a harmonious resolution. Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. Yeah, yeah like if you look at that act too, where, or if you look at, well, in, in, you even have it. So in, in act one, when Claudius, Claudio and Pedro or Don Pedro are talking, there's a third person listening who takes that to John, to John John. That, that is a deharmonizing right. created. But then you also what I don't what I'm not 100% clear on is was there another third yes. person listening who then went to um, Leonato yes. and that's a triangle that creates a Antonio. triangle mm-hmm. Antonio that creates a triangle that is another harmonizing triangle because they're well in theory I mean that's but that's not one they're not going to use that information that's not a triangle that is going to be destined to tear them apart it's going to be destined to try to bring them together so oh, that same this. shape can can create two different outcomes depending on the perhaps it's depending on the 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 pa- whether or not the passions have been rightly ordered and whether they're being controlled and whether they will be rightly ordered too because because one of the things that Shakespeare as an artist as a renaissance artist is doing in his play is the people who watch it are supposed to experience an ordering in their own souls mm-hmm. by imitating the play and then the play itself is modeling how that happens, right? That's the purpose of that's the purpose of good plays. But so so if we look at one two, Antonio and Leonardo are together, and Leonardo Antonio says, "I have strange news that you yet dreamt not of." Leonardo says, "Are they good?" And how does Antonio respond? Do you see that? Are the as news, the event stamps them? As the event stamps them. But I can't tell a- you if this news is good. And, he, and the same thing happens when, when uh, Baraccio comes to Don John and he says, I've got something that you can do. So, and he says, well, what's that going to, how's that going to help me with the, my, my, my mystery? And, and he says, it's up to you to make something out of it. Here it's as the event stamps them, but they have a good cover. Mm-hmm. They show well outward. Now, if I may, I want to jump on that last two clauses, but they have a good cover. They show well outward. Because notice again, Don John said, I cannot hide what I am, which has to do with cover, right? And the whole, the whole um, when we get to act two, we're going to be at a masked ball. But the whole, the whole of act one is about how do you best communicate? How do you win another person? Is it best if you want to win another person, should you disguise yourself? Should you wear a mask? Or should you be an authentic self? Or is there some alternative? And for all their faults, be Dick and Benetris, they do not wear disguises when, you mean, unless the disguise is huh. that they're pretending. Well, their hearts are disguised like, from themselves. That's, right. that's the idea, right? right. They, they think, yeah. they're, being they're being honest being authentic. Yes, yes. Benedict but, is not uh, wearing a mask. He is stuffed. Remember that? That's right. He's a dummy. Stuffed. Yeah. Stuffed he's a with all honorable virtues. He is no less than a stuffed man. <laughs> but all of that points to a, another huge Shakespeare idea, and that's appearance versus reality. And so I love that scene three comes right after scene two, because scene two is this conversation of, is it good? Well, I can't tell you if it's good, but it looks good. That, that sets up what's real. Uh-huh. Is, is the way something looks real? And Within scene two, you can't miss the fact that Antonio has misconstrued what he overheard. Um, uh-huh. And uh-huh. this sets up, of course, huge plot things because this is this is foreshadowing of other people are going to see something that they think that's real, but they're going to conclude something that's wrong. So they're having a conversation right. about what's real 
And in this conversation, he's telling something false, but thinks it's real. And immediately after that, Don John says, no, I'm what's real because what you see is what you get. I'm wicked and I'm going to be wicked and I'm real. And this is what's real. Well, and Leonardo's response to Antonio is half the fellow any wit that told you this is the person who said it. Yes. Is he trustworthy? Leonardo (laughs) looks for evidence, which is that's, yeah, that is interesting that he says that. And then, and then Antonio says, he's a good sharp fellow. I'll send for him and question him yourself. And then Leonardo says, no, we'll hold it as a dream. We'll, we'll, let's wait and see. He could have just said, we'll wait and see, but he says, we'll hold it as a dream. So you have to, you you have to forgive me, but I'm going to, I'm going to ask you guys a, 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 a quiz question. I just went to check something on an intuition. What do you think is the central in the very dead center of the play? What do you think is the scene? Is it Harrow's death? Nope. Okay, I don't know. That was just a it's, guess. It, what is it? It's the interpretive key to the whole play. Dogberry and Virgis with the watch. Ah, yes. Where everything yes. is revealed by people who get everything wrong. So you have... Benedict and Beatrice who say more than they mean to say, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, the between the lines demonstrates their deep attraction for one another. We also, well, but Dogberry does, but Dogberry does the same thing. What? Sorry, David said, oh, I just said Claude, and then there's Claudio who has no subtext. Right, right. Go right. ahead, sorry, Angelina. But Dog, but Dogberry is also, he, he's a mirror of Benedict and Beatrice in a, in a parody comic way mm-hmm. because he mm-hmm. also doesn't know what he's saying. He's saying way more than he knows he's saying. He's accidentally revealing the truth. Right. But he doesn't even right. know that he, he doesn't know that he has the truth. And he is an ass. Well, that's how, let it be, let it be stated for the record. Let it be I written. am an ass. <laughs> 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 okay, I'm going to, I don't know how much time we have left. Oh, just but a couple I, minutes. Okay, so I'm going to propose a, as my kind of wrapping, summarizing sort of statement. I'm going to propose that, that if people want to look at act one in a way that opens up the rest of the play to them, you know, look, that gives them all kind of clues, go through it with a, a pencil or a highlighter and note every comment or every statement that has to do with how you determine what you should believe or, mm. or h- how you should, how, how to, how to persuade it. Okay. Look at it from the perspective of the talker. What should a speaker do to, to persuade? Look at it from the point of view of the listener. What should the listener do to be persuaded and look at it from the point of view of the message? How should the message persuade? And don't only think in terms of words, right? Because for example, right away, um, the messenger says of of Claudio that um, the much honor that he received was much deserved on his part and equally remembered by Don Pedro. Well, how did Don Pedro remember it, right? If honor's not remembered, is it even honor? And then it talks about how he did in the figure of a lamb the feats of a lion. In other words, he was able to he was able to fight bravely while looking like a lamb, right? He apparently tricked the enemy or something. So right away from the very beginning, we're getting models of people winning, persuading, um, rhetoric, if you like, and just go through it. And every time you see a comment, you'll see a lot of them. Every time you see a comment about the speaker, the message or the audience, just note it somehow. And I promise you that will open up things throughout the rest of the play. You will hear echo upon echo of that kind of dialogue. Angelina, do you have any final thoughts you want to offer up? Well, I was as I was going through Act One, Scene One, while Angie was talking, I, I saw oh, another thanks. example. Oh, thanks. No, no, I was I was following I'm, you. I'm joking. I was following you in the text, uh, and I, it was it struck me that scene the play opens with a message. Angelina, I wonder that you would still be talking. <laughs> Nobody marks you. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> um. I thought it was interesting that the play opens with a message. So you have this idea of, mm-hmm. you know, hearing things. So you're hearing about how they were in the war. But then I noticed again, so I had said at the beginning, you know, look for all the times Beatrice finds a reason to bring up Benedict. There it is. They're having a conversation about the war and she pops up. I pray you, is Signor Montanto returned from the wars mm-hmm. or no? Like immediate mm-hmm. first words out of her mouth in this play. And a double meaning in them. And a double meaning, yes. Yes, the double entente. And, uh, but, but I mean, she, 
because she's playing, but she also wants to know, is he coming here? Mm-hmm. Is Benedict mm-hmm. on his way? Mm-hmm. She can't actually say she wants to know, though. Right. Then she <laughs> she's annoyed that he's coming. She has to mock him so that she can talk about him. Exactly. Exactly. That's, isn't, that, that, isn't, that, isn't that just how it works? She's wearing a disguise <laughs> in order to reveal herself. Well, don't get, don't get, don't be too hard on Beatrice. I mean, you know, boys pull girls' hair to tell them they like them, so y'all aren't any better at this. <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't being hard. I was yeah. just saying that's what I she don't does. know that anyone said Benedict had a better approach. <laughs> she, she is, she is wearing a disguise in order to reveal herself. Right? That's that's what people do until they're ready to reveal themselves. Yes. Then they get tricked into revealing themselves. You get the sense that she is more aware of herself than Benedict is. And I don't know if that's maybe because... She's a woman? Well, perhaps. But also maybe it's the way like Emma Thompson portrayed it, for example. And like you guys mentioned how it seems like maybe she's hurt at the end of their little... Emma Thompson there. definitely mm-hmm. makes it. And Emma like Thompson that. plays it that way mm-hmm. very subtly, mm-hmm. but you know. I'd love to see it done like a junior high <laughs> boy and girl. Like, you always end with a Jade's trick. <laughs> Well, <laughs> while you were talking, David, though, I was I was thinking the same thing that uh, that it's it's possible she thought they were a thing and he didn't think like he seems kind of clueless. Right. Mm, yeah. Right. And oh, you, interesting. one of the things that's uh... and the way she's like the Jade's trick is you can't finish what you started. That's essentially what she's saying to him. And he seems to be oblivious that he started anything. Huh. And there's a lot. I mean, you, there's a lot. I think Shakespeare purposefully leaves. The, oh yeah what happened before the play opened to allow you know even with claudio because claudio says oh i'd seen her before but i didn't quite see her that way when he's talking about right wrote. right so it's clear these people know each other previously there's there are relationships there they've reckoned they've seen each other but then what i do have to insist on one point though there is zero possibility under the sun of pythagoras's cosmos <laughs> That Benedict and Beatrice slept together before the play, like they oh, had. Oh no, that, that would not that would not be consistent with Shakespeare's reality. That would be disorder in one of his plays. That would wouldn't have been done in that era either. Well, it would have been done, but not <laughs> not, not by Benedict and Beatrice. It would have been frowned would, upon, like the later scene. Well, in, I mean, look, I mean, the hero scene is legit. That kind of thing would happen. Um. There's no way that a popular play would have portrayed a, 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 an open sexual relationship between two people not married. That I mean, they would that would have not happened. Mm-hmm. So that that can't be. Yeah, he would get his head chopped off. That 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 that's generally not something not. that playwrights were attempting to. Besides, I think for. that that I think I think if Beatrice had been genuinely heartbroken or dishonored. We don't see that. Like she reconciles right. with him too quickly for it to be anything serious that he did. There's not signs of abuse, if we can use modern terminology. There's signs of. There could have been a misunderstanding, right? Yeah. Where she thought yeah. they were a thing, and he didn't, and he takes off, and then she's manfield. Or but, she's always wanted him to feel a certain way, or he pretended that he was, and she, you know. Whatever it was between them, I just can't. I I can't see it anything other than kind of a minor breach between them because they get over it too quick she gets over it too quickly or or again to look at the uh, how many how many high school or college couples go out break up go out break up you know i could see something like that but she definitely sees him as unstable and and he needs to be stabilized um yes and that and and we didn't talk about this but that's also in scene one when when uh she mocks the fact that benedict is coming back with his new sworn brother claudio Mm -hmm. she mocks Mm -hmm. the fact that he actually could be faithful to anyone she says oh he changes his fashion you know like a hat whatever's the new fashion that's 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 benedict and but that also brings up another motif of where where are your loyalties so they're coming back from war these brothers that's the loyalties and then and, and but then as they enter the battlefield of love new loyalties have to be formed and old loyalties tested and possibly broken which is going to come up later in, in the play Claudio right when when, when Beatrice is going to test Benedict where, where really she's asking who is your loyalty to right and it you get the sense also that when Benedict is sort of mocking Claudio he's saying he's worried that he's going to lose his buddy yeah sure all right well with that we need to uh we need to wrap this up uh, thanks to both Angelina and Andrew Kern for joining me on the podcast. Uh, 
Thanks Pleasure to St. John's College for sponsoring sjc.edu if you want to learn more about St. John's and possibly learn how you can play croquet against Navy. Um, <laughs> don't forget about the other shows. We have our daily poem show uh, every morning-ish, usually pretty early every morning, sometimes late morning. We have, um, we have a poem going up every day. Uh, we also have the Close Reads flagship show, which is going on right now. Right now, Tim and Heidi and I are discussing Graham Greene's The Power and the Glory. Tim, that young startup hath all the glory of my overthrow. <laughs> so I think we should end the show every week by just insulting somebody with a random line. Oh, I like it. To. Okay. Um, you know, you did it already. You did it already. Aww. You can't you gotta save some for save some bullets. Um, we will read Act Two next week. <laughs> uh, Act Two is a little longer, so just be prepared. Um, I guess that's it. Any any final thoughts? I mean, anything? No, I have say? a couple. I have some notes. Here, but I'm going to save them for next time because right. they you will take, still be in Shakespeare's play even next time. <laughs> you take yeah, you take pleasure then in the notes. I do. What you do about noting my annotations? Ah, in the book. very good, very good. <laughs> Fair David, for Angelina, I thank you for your pains, and for Angelina and for Andrew Kern, <laughs> I'm David Kern. Thank, thank you for listening. Happy reading, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye.